0: Hi everybody, and welcome to May I Interrupt, the second season of our slightly ear podcast broadcast talking about all things exciting and interesting in eye care. We're here today live at the American Academy of Optometry, and we're really excited to spend the next few minutes talking to some very influential and interesting person within the eye care
1: field. Hey Craig, may I interrupt?
0: Before I get started though, oh excuse me, what was that?
1: (laughs) May I interrupt? Yes you can. I just wanted to like talk about how cool our golf balls are because they are right. And Scott, who is our guest today, happens to play golf. So he was uh, quite happy to get his may I interrupt golf balls that is true. Also may I interrupt one more time? Yes. Okay. Don't forget about the water bottles. These are great. I've been drinking out of this the last few days, cleaning it occasionally. And I just want to say that if you love this bottle or the golf balls, please talk to your Oculus rep or contact the company to see if they will send you some because we really want you to have this fine. May I interrupt merchandise? All right, you go ahead. Thank you. Jason appears to be done now, <laughs> so we'll continue uh,
0: with what we on <laughs> doing. Today. I'm not really done, I, but done for the I moment. was going to talk about influential people within the field and then introduce <laughs> you until you interrupted and now you're on your own. His name is Jed Becker. Uh, well, we That's don't want to have many mistakes. So. so today we uh, have a very interesting guest for our show today. And I know that it's really he's an interesting guest because Jason told me he's a really interesting guest. And so we're going to find out here in a minute. So I'd like to welcome, if we can, Dr. Scott Hausworth. Scott, come on over.
2: How are you doing, man? Hey, great, great. Thanks, Craig. Welcome. Scott. Jason. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Climb up in our fancy chairs here. These are really fancy. They Actually, are. They're almost as fancy as the golf balls, but eh, You can't quite. beat the golf balls. <laughs> yes. You can't
1: beat the golf balls.
0: So I think I should tell you that the golf balls look great and they have a nice logo. Yeah. But they're illegal. They have too many dimples.
1: For real. Then I definitely want some. Yeah. They, they go farther.
2: They're contraband. Contraband on the golf course. Are these yeah. are these so German golf the, balls? Is yeah. that <laughs> what it is? <laughs> is the Ranger or... used on the golf Plus. <laughs> oh in yeah. Germany.
1: Gotcha. Right.
2: I definitely don't belong there. That's a dangerous situation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, so Scott, tell us your story. Where are you from?
2: So, uh, do you want this to be a long story yes, or a short you know, story? Like, medium. Where, where did <laughs> medium. You grow
0: up, did you grow up? And yeah. And...
2: I never grew up. Um, <laughs> Got that. I was was. Born in Upper Michigan, but raised in Wyoming, um, state of Wyoming, and then um, undergrad at uh, at, uh, University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, the coldest, one of the coldest places in the United States. Uh, Good hockey team. Yeah, great hockey team. Good uh, hockey team. Great hockey team. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Ended up at uh, Southern California College of Optometry for my optometric education. That brought me to Minnesota uh, with uh, Small ophthalmology practice called Minnesota Eye Consultants, where did my residency uh, in Jason's shadow. Yeah. He had kind of set the very, bar pretty high. Very
1: small shadow, by the way. Well, due to lack of height,
2: the sun was high in the sky at the True. time. True. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So I followed two years behind Jason, and uh, then remained there for 17 years. In the last four and a half years, I've been at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, where I'm running the ocular surface clinic and. Uh, Contributing hopefully in a small way to advancement of so that's, uh, collaboration. So
0: that's, great. so that's in Boulder. Is that, correct? that
2: is in the Denver metro. We're actually Denver, in Aurora. Okay. Yeah. In, in Aurora.
1: Okay. Okay. Great.
2: So you're a Midwest guy through and through.
0: Pretty much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Vikings fan. From the mountains to the prairies. Uh-oh. It's well, Michigan, okay. You
2: can't be a different. Right? Mm-hmm. I am oh. I am I am a Detroit fan. <laughs> Let's go. See right we now. should have taken
1: Scott to the Bruins Red Wings game tonight. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, we yeah. missed out on I that. would
2: have loved to have gone to that so actually. So tell
1: me how are
0: the Lions doing this year?
1: Oh boy.
2: Lions? Wow. Yeah. Uh yeah, I'm sure they're doing really well. Okay. Okay. See, <laughs> it,
1: it, you could do that if your team was much better, but they're not. Four so the game's
0: better than the last time I looked.
1: I think they had to like kick a field goal to beat them at the last second because they were losing up until that it's point. A, it's a W. You caught uh. the W. Yeah, more of an ice hockey fan than a football fan. Ah, great. Well, oh, of
0: course, good hockey team from North Dakota. Right,
1: correct. Thank you. <laughs> so, get it. Okay, so your
0: area of expertise, right, is primarily dry eye, or yeah, do say- you do a lot of different things? Some focus on dry
2: eye? I would say probably eighty to ninety percent of what I do in, in any given week clinically is dry eye. So we we do a little bit of co-management with uh, with cataracts and that was relatively new to the university as well. Um, that's that program is expanding, but the majority of my time is taken up with ocular surface disease right. and cornea.
0: Right. So did you set up a separate dry eye clinic? Is it structured that way or not?
2: Yes. Yeah, so um, So yes, I have a day and a half that's devoted specifically to doing evaluations on referred patients uh, from either other areas inside the eye clinic. Uh, We have a pretty big eye center. uh, Or community-based referrals. Um, Also uh, doing procedures on those days as well that are ocular surface related. Um, And then the rest of the time it's follow-ups. So you know the other three, three and a half days are follow-ups from dry eye as well as cataract management.
0: That's great. You know, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, the dry eye field is so fascinating. And even mm-hmm. walking around the hall today, it's like, wow. You know that it's really the number of
1: booths that are and, and, have and, a dry and big eye. Moves, right? yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Well, it's it's changed a lot. I mean, when when I came out of school and went into uh, you know my residency, it was primarily because of refractive surgery, which was really kind of taken off. LASIK and PRK was really taking off at that time. But we generated a lot of dry eye that way. And um, then not too long afterwards, we really started having, you know, paradigm shifts in how we approached it and managed it and understood, you know, kind of the importance of inflammation. And then along came the, you know, the, the uh, TFOS uh, committees for, you know, the first dues, the uh, meibomine gland workshop, and rec- oh, more recently, we've had right. dues 2, and then we right. continue to, to learn. Right. So, it's, it's really changed.
0: So, uh, in, in the practice, are there multiple people that see dry eye patients? Or?
2: So, I think everyone sees a little bit of it, right? So, um, in our department, we have upwards of about seven or eight cornea specialists, and we have uh, six or seven optometrists, uh, including our low vision department, and everyone sees a little bit. But, um, but if it's beyond where they're comfortable seeing it, or if it's a more specialized case, those end up getting referred to myself. And then Darren Gregory, who's a um, cornea specialist, he has a, a pretty thriving dry practice as well. He's been there for 20ish years or so at the university. So he and I handle the bulk of them. Okay.
0: So the reason I was asking is that, you know, in these larger facilities, multi-practitioners, Do do you follow or have you developed a protocol that kind of is the checklist on how you manage it so everybody's dancing it's the same drummer?
2: Well, so it's always hard to do that with multiple physicians, right? So in my practice, um, this was key. And I think, um, you know, I started developing sort of like at least a diagnostic, you know, routine or regimen that I wanted the technicians to follow. You know, probably ten years ago, maybe even a little bit longer than that now, um, because that was when we started to see our, our first diagnostics. And you know, there's a there's an order or a method to the madness. If you're not collecting information in the right order, it actually confounds some of the data you collect later. So. I kind of recognized that a little bit early, and and tried to make sure that the the flow made sense from both a patient standpoint and a technician standpoint. But it was something that we could gather data from. Right. So, so in my clinic, it's pretty regimented. Yep. So they they go through a step-by-step process right. before I see the patient. Right.
0: I mean, it would appear to me that that would be a way to evaluate outcomes a lot easier if the process is in place. Then.
2: Exactly, and we're in the process of doing that now. Um, you know, we have a fortunate to have a team of epidemiologists we're setting up a dry eye registry so we can actually track patients and follow them through the process regardless of whether they're seeing Dr. Gregory and myself or one of the other docs um, and we're just in the in the in our infancy of really being able to get that going. Right. That's great.
0: So uh, Jason you know that you're known as my co-host. I am. So are you gonna talk? Or... Yeah well
2: you
1: know you just have to like give me a chance to cut in here right? This is. You're doing a great job. You're doing a great job, Craig. You're sounding yeah. great. I got all my interrupting in early on. I'm trying to be I kind to you, that. you know. But I'm bringing you in because you were smirking at me. So I was I smirking I was a at signal. you. No, it was just the blue light reflecting off your cap <laughs> there. Yeah. Right. So. So okay. So I will. Because I am curious because um, I would love to know. Like so, when when you see a patient who's dry eye, which we know is. That's such a simplified way of thinking about it. What kind of when you get done with your workup, what are you what are you ultimately finding? Are you finding that most people it's a it's a gland issue with, with oil secretions? You find there's are you surprised at the volume of aqueous deficiency or combo bladders? I mean, what what do you see as you work people up? And uh, and again, go back to how that change, changed from maybe 10 or 20 years ago, how you used to manage a patient and how you diagnosed
2: it. Yeah, boy, it, that's a pretty long time span. I mean, realistically, when I started really getting interest in this area um, with patients, it was because I was in Minneapolis uh, practicing you know close to the downtown area, and we were seeing actually a pretty large refugee population that was coming in from equatorial Africa that had really horrible ocular surface disease and they're all kind of complaining about the same things their eyes were red they were uncomfortable and that's really actually sort of the the fire that got into me to, to try to figure out how can i help these people right so patients come to you you want to make them feel better you want to alleviate their problems and so it, it started some furious reading um, <clears throat> we didn't have a lot of tools back in those days it was a lot of artificial tears it was a little bit of steroids then we got you know cyclosporin or rostasis um, and that I played around with for quite a long time before I figured out really how it worked. It's it's not something that necessarily came really intuitively. So it's been, I think a lot of trial and error over the first probably decade of my career. And to answer your question, really, what am I seeing now? I think that's probably a little bit skewed, just because of where I am in a hospital setting. We get um, sort of like a main line of patients that come from the bone marrow transplant clinic, so I see probably a abnormally high amount of like graft versus host. Um, I run our uh, ocular cicatricial pemphigoid coordination, so they see multiple specialists, including myself, for ocular surface care. So we also have a pretty. We actually have a joint clinic with rheumatology and immunology, ocular immunology, and so Sjogren's patients and people that have, you know, uh, more advanced autoimmune disorders end up in my chair, too. So, asking me what that looks like, I think I probably see a lot more really kind of severe immune-mediated disease, Mm -hmm. which actually involves not just aqueous suppression, but it definitely involves, you know, uh, pretty significant uh, negative impacts on the meibomian glands, goblet cell structures, and just... You know, some cicatrizing disease on top of it. So,
1: so there's there there probably is some interweaving of these different aspects. Yeah, inflammation can have a impact you know, in multiple ways. Multiple and places. ways, absolutely. And um, so, what what kind of objective measures to use to diagnose, but then also to to follow up on treatment to know whether because because we know that dry eye doesn't just start one day. You don't know, wake up with dry eye. It's something that evolves over your lifetime. It builds. Mm-hmm and like a lot of conditions that take weeks and months and years to build, they don't go away with a medication for two weeks. Right. So, so a lot of times we may put patients on a treatment and we might see them back six or eight weeks and they might come back and say, I don't think this is doing much, doc how do you determine whether it is doing anything or not other than just their comment which as we know sometimes isn't the best measure
2: well I think one of the first things is your your frame of mind really has to be constantly challenging yourself and what you think you know so um, so I think that's really where it starts so we have great diagnostics much better than when I started obviously we've got my biography we've got osmolarity we've got MMP9 detection um, we still have things like tear volume assessment, tear meniscus height. Um, I try to get as much of that information as I can, in addition to even things like corneal sensitivity, which I didn't necessarily think was super important, but the more patients you see, like uh, especially in the, the realm that I'm in, I, you know, we're finding a lot more people that have neurosensory dysfunction as well that's probably contributing to decreased tear flow. So. Um, so I think the first step is, try to get as much information on, on, about the patient as you can using you know as much available diagnostic criteria. But then when you start them on a treatment plan, which foundationally involves trying to uh, rehabilitate the mybomine glands, trying to calm down any inflammation, um, making sure that they have access, or how to use their artificial tears for comfort from time to time during the day. Those are all foundational things that you know, most patients I think would benefit from, when you see them back six weeks, eight weeks, if they're saying they're not feeling better, you have to kind of take a step back and say, okay, well, well, did I miss something? You know, is there something else that I'm not taking into consideration with this? Or do we just need a little bit more time with this? What are your symptoms like? Is one eye worse or better than the other? What time of day is it, you know, that that your eyes are at their worst? Um, All of those things I think uh, really help kind of nail down what the problem is and right. so as I've gotten better at you know, Taking better history and taking a look at the diagnostics and challenging myself. I think it's helped patients
1: Yeah, now one of the things you brought up and I thought and I've heard this before and I, and I just haven't thought about it lately again but corneal sensation mm-hmm. um, a Is that potentially much A much bigger part of this whole picture than we've ever given it credit for is that possible? Um, B. Is, is anybody working on some objective ways of measuring that actually quantifies something?
2: So that, those are really important questions. Um, and the answer to the first part is absolutely yes. Um, so I, I think the neurosensory system and dysfunctions there actually contribute to a pretty significant amount because we have such a... Um, codependency of the epithelial health, but then also the feedback mechanisms that yeah. monitor for and from an external environment, you know, upregulation of tear secretion, all of those things really are kind of driven through neurosensory feedback, and well, so. No,
1: and you know through A, refractive surgery, mm-hmm. we know what that does. We know um, if you put a scleral lens on your eye, protect, you know, you have, you decrease tear production. If you, um, if you have a neurotrophic event or whatever, um, you're going to experience dry conditions. Um, mm-hmm. Contact lens wearers too. I mean, we know that chronic contact lens wear can create a little bit of a perhaps a desensitization of the cornea. And mm-hmm. is that we do see a lot of times contact lens wearers blinking less and things like that because they don't feel it, and they develop habits of again I, another aspect of dry is blinking, yeah which I think again Critical. is way underappreciated how that influences the bad habits we develop over our lifetime when it comes to blinking. Absolutely. Anyway, sorry to interrupt that
2: up. Well, it's the name of the show. I kind of expected it. Yeah, a little Uh.
1: bit. The the question is, is after I interrupt, can you remember what you were saying? Uh, Can you keep your train of thought through it?
2: (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Um, So, neurosensory aspects of it, are there ways that we're actually addressing that or studying it? So, the thing is, is that I think neurosensory malfunction dysfunction is probably a pretty significant percentage of what we're seeing now um, in some patients it's desensitization or, or decreased sensation so kind of movement towards neurotrophy. although maybe it you get into kind of a messy gray area there but um, then you have the folks that go in the opposite direction where they become hyperesthetic or or increasingly sensitized which we know happens when you uh, put inflammation around the nociceptors in the cornea so so we are a part of a 23 um, site um, nationwide trial that's looking at that it's called the nasa study Um, it's our pi is out of uh, tufts university it's actually non-funded but it's the first attempt to try to quantify how much of that neurosensory dysfunction is really a part of what we're seeing as dry eye so
1: yeah i think that's a whole new realm of objective testing that's waiting for us to figure out Mm -hmm. Um, and then utilize that in in the diagnosis and management too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That to me is probably one of the more um, exciting parts about it and then, in addition to that, you know, we can actually correlate that with what we see in the corneal nerve architecture through confocal microscopy, because that's another part of what we do um, for select patients in the dry eye uh, or ocular surface clinic. So. Right,
1: and you have the opportunity to do that when you're working with advanced cases. Most mm-hmm. clinic clinicians are not gonna have confocal in their offices, but right. knowing, you know, that, that's an aspect of it too. It's important.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think it just contributes to the greater body of knowledge of what we're, what we're ultimately looking at, and, um, maybe driven through a neurosensory problem.
0: So do you think coming from a relatively dry area in Minnesota think, <laughs> to another dry area in Colorado, you always hear about dry eye being the incidence of it being so much greater in Colorado. Is that a factor or is that
2: in? No, I think there's definitely truth to it. I mean, we would see it definitely seasonally in Minnesota with the winters being so cold and a lot of the moisture gets sucked out of the air there. Um, but you know, so we'd have patients that were on more seasonal directed therapy, you know. And in the summertime, it's relatively humid um, and, you know, people spend a lot of time outdoors there in the summertime, of course. and. Um, in Colorado, our summers are just about as dry, and then we have fire season, which this year went from like, you know, beginning of July all the way through mid September, where we so, had smoke. So you're saying and hot air
1: contributes to dryness?
2: Uh, well, Is know. that why
1: I always feel dry when <laughs> Craig's talking to me?
2: I think that's a totally my eyes, different all, mechanism. Oh, well, we'll, we'll notice if Scott starts rubbing his eyes in a couple minutes. Rubbing eyes and rubbing my head—I'm not really sure, but um, but definitely we see. I think it being a more year-round uh, issue in Colorado mm-hmm. uh, with lower humidity, and then again that period between July and September where we're dealing with a lot of particulate matter in the air that just exacerbates inflammation, makes everyone kind of miserable, okay. even if they're doing well on therapy yeah. beforehand. Yeah.
0: So, you utilize different tests as we're talking about to analyze, mm-hmm. are those driven downward towards the technician or assistant or are some of these tests that some of the instrumentation tests and so on you're doing directly yourself? Or, yeah, most uh, how does that
2: Yeah, most of it is uh, I try to make it as much technician driven as I can as long as they have the workflow down and understand why we're doing things the way that they are and so. You know, we we recently changed uh, the technician that is working with me, and she's great. She's very uh, eager to learn about a lot of this stuff, and and you know, I want to want to have it make sense to her as to why we do the things that we do. Um, and to get you know, when we're doing like things like myography, get good quality images because it, it doesn't help if we're getting like you know little snippets of the glands. We want to really be able to image the whole thing. Right, right. So, but I try to make it just from. From my standpoint, I try to make it as much of that as tech-driven as I can, just because I, my part of the examination is still probably you know, 10 minutes or so, seven minutes. Um, but then I can spend time going over those results right. with, with the patient so that they understand. And um, you know, while we, we had this kind of shift a little bit because of COVID, you know, for a while I was working with a medical educator that would also kind of reinforce some of the basics. So I don't have to tell patients how to do a warm compress. 10 times 20 times a day right so because that does take a lot of time yeah right. so
1: so let's shift to treatment we talked a lot about the diagnosis which of course is critical having the right diagnosis you're much more likely to get the right treatment but what what and then again breaking apart the dry eye categories. so let's talk first about let's not talk about your advanced severe ocular surface mm-hmm. disease patients because they're they're kind of unique to you and your setting. A lot of practitioners aren't going to have that patient population. Let's talk about your dry patients. I'm sure you're at a university. And there's people that just work there mm-hmm. whose eyes are dry and yeah, they absolutely. come see you, or people from the community whose eyes are dry and they don't have. What do you find is, is effective? I mean, what are some of your favorite strategies for trying to manage the different types of dry eye?
2: So, um, so number one, I think. Uh, Finding out how long it's been a problem for the patient is helpful. And the longer that they've had an issue with it, the more likely they are gonna get immunomodulary therapy. So, you know, or Restasis, or Zydra, our Sequa, you know, whatever your, your particular flavor is, I think those are still really helpful from a foundational standpoint. Um, most practitioners, I think, probably uh, don't quite give the correct instructions on warm compress therapy. You know, we wanna make sure that they're doing it for 10 to 15 minutes. For a lot of patients that have kind of like mild to moderate MGD, that can be a lifesaver just by itself. Um, uh, addressing you know blink deficiencies uh, certainly as, with as much time as we spend on the computer or you know electronic devices, making sure that they're taking breaks. You know doing things like conscious blinking. So anytime their situation changes, they do one or two blinks to try to overcome the big period of time in between where they're not blinking. Um, And then, you know, if if they're the type of patient that's waking up in the morning um, and noticing symptoms right away, uh, then, you know, having them try to figure out, well, we can kind of tell, I guess, because of some of the blink data that we're collecting, you know, what the, Correlation is between that and nocturnal leg ophthalmos, but addressing those types of things with uh, protective mechanisms, whether it's a sleep mask that's lined maybe with a just a tiny little strip of Saran wrap, um, you know, to something more elaborate like a sleep goggle or ointments. I think those foundational things I think are, are helpful to a pretty broad uh, percentage of the of the population with dry so eye.
1: Along those lines, and this is something else that sometimes comes up. Uh, what about the notion of shut-eye time? Do you ever factor that into your management? What I mean by that is there's a lot of people that only sleep five hours a night or less. And so that means they're probably eye-open 19 hours a day. And I really feel, at least from a personal perspective, when I'm lacking sleep, my eyes are more vulnerable to feeling dry because I've had less of that shut-eye time. And is there, is there a benefit? Um, I had somebody recently who a, has a significant degree of dry and insomnia. So if you can't sleep, that's, yeah. I understand, but close your eyes course, as you're awake. Yeah, so yeah. again,
2: that's part of the history taking that we're doing, so yeah. so just as kind of a checklist as we go through it, you know, we ask about history of migraines. Uh, one of the questions is, you know, what is your average amount of sleep that you get okay. per night, and is it restful or not? You know? And has that ever been We haven't done any retrospective to analysis interesting yet. interesting to see that. Yeah. But I think that, you know, for sure, in the patients that are saying, well, I don't really sleep well, and you know, I'm getting maybe three or four hours a night. I think you know, in those patients, we're really kind of directing them to, you know, a you know, maybe we should be looking at this maybe through a sleep study or at least a letter to their PCP to talk about those things, and addressing potential uh, protective mechanisms. So,
0: do you, do you fit contact lenses yourself? I don't. So that so it's part of the treatment when you do turn to contact lens systems. Aid in the treatment of scleral Yeah, so, so that's moved over to a different department.
2: Yeah, so, so and that, that's that been a really interesting collaboration um, just because it's, I get to the point where I, when I'm offering that to the patients and we set up the appointment for them to see our contact lens specialist, right. um, you know, the and I usually will send a, a letter or a note along with it saying hey, this is what I kind of think would be beneficial sure. and take it from there. Um, you know, those patients, generally speaking, actually do pretty well with them, too. Right. So it is a service that we offer, although I don't do it myself.
0: Right. Right. That's a pretty cool system.
1: Yeah. Talk, talk, if you will, again, just a little bit about the treatment options and maybe moving more towards in-office treatments that you guys do that you find effective.
2: Sure. So I've worked with um, a number of different treatments, you know, um, up until recently, we were doing uh, quite a bit of lipid flow. I've done my Bowman gland probing. Um, I had access to IPL when we were at Minnesota and we're still trying to work that through the hospital system in, in Colorado. Um, and then I've done quite a bit of work just sort of freelance, I guess, a little bit with uh, with a tear care system. So a lot of like meibomian gland oriented procedures, and I think those can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's probably a little bit of a difference, at least uh, the patients that I track towards something like IPL generally have a lot more lid inflammation. And so I think those patients did really well with that as an initial therapy and then may still benefit from expression along with it. Mm-hmm but um, addressing the meibomian glands is still a really helpful part of what what we do.
1: Yeah, I think at at our dry clinic at at Indiana, um, I think our IPL is the most used instrument in the office. I think Mm -hmm. people really do like it, and they do find it helps, so um, I I think those treatments are are certainly viable for a lot of patients.
2: Although it's a smaller number of patients and there's not really good peer-reviewed data to support it, my bone gland probing has actually been really helpful for a lot of patients too. And that's um, a little bit more, I think, technically challenging. Um, it certainly takes a bit more time. We have to numb the lids uh, using a topical anesthetic and then use um, a probe to basically just go in maybe at a two millimeters or so. But a lot of patients do seem to get relief from that too, although it's can be a little bit uncomfortable still, even sure. using a topical anesthetic. And again, we're still trying to build you know, the literature around that, whether it's truly helpful or not.
1: We've got a couple minutes left, and, and I was just wondering if maybe, because you do a lot of dry treatment, if you've got maybe just a couple pearls, like, like uh, I don't know, before I do a lipoflow, I'll send the patient home with X therapy for two weeks first, or anything that you do that you find maybe helps that a lot of people haven't thought to do?
2: Well, I think when we're doing mybomian gland procedures, or really any procedure in the office, the more invasive it is. This includes probing. It probably includes lipoflow to some extent. It certainly includes any kind of manual expression where you're kind of mashing on the lids a little bit. I think steroids for um, a week or two afterwards makes sense. Afterwards? Um, afterwards, okay. right. I don't always start it beforehand, although most patients are on some type of immunomodulatory therapy beforehand, like uh, you know, rustasis or whatever. Sure. But, but, um, but afterwards, I think it makes sense. I mean, we, cataract surgery these days is a pretty, non-in well, not non-invasive, but it's minimally invasive. I mean, we're talking about a two millimeter incision, and we still stir up quite a bit of inflammation internally, but we don't really have the same measurement tools, or we haven't really looked at it the same way in lid procedures, but I think it probably makes sense that we're generating some type of inflammation there. So. I've always thought it made sense to do a week or two of steroids afterwards. You know, something that's kind of mid-level, um, like a lot of prednol or something, twice daily for two weeks. and a minimal IOP response with those uh, sorts of things, and I think patient it helps patients recover a little bit better.
1: And have you ever have you ever considered like uh, or done this with a patient where you just did a intermittent pulsing of steroids? You know, like mm-hmm. take three times a day for a week, every six weeks for a week. You know, and just chronically rather than having them go on forever
2: yeah so short-term so I'll, I'll allow um, pulse steroids for sure in patients that uh, you know we're finding maybe aren't really well controlled with chronic therapy using uh-huh. like cyclosporin or, or lafite although if they're if they're feeling the need to do it you know we're talking about dry flares these days um, if they're feeling the need to do that you know more than or maybe once a month or more i think it's it probably makes sense that we need to adjust some other aspect of their therapy so
0: okay that's great i mean uh, really it's very interesting to hear exactly what's going on and at the university uh, is there any question that we should have asked you that we haven't, that is something burning you would like to share with the audience?
2: Something burning that i like to share? Well again, the golf balls are great, although I'm, now that you mentioned that they're high speed I'm kind of afraid to use them because yeah. my shots can go anywhere and I really don't want to yeah. hurt anyone they with just that. just go
0: farther out of box. Farther, right, I was okay. going
2: to say. <laughs> farther under the road, yeah. that's next to the golf yeah. course uh no i prefer red wine yeah. over over whites generally okay yeah kind okay. of an old world guy versus yeah. a new that's world. an excellent tip i've been thinking so. about one myself go for
1: hockey over fighting sue you yeah, know of exactly. course right exactly <laughs> exactly, exactly. You get so the important things to our
0: audience thank you for watching this brings to a close this episode of may i interrupt we had a phenomenal guest today dr scott houseworth uh, my partner dr jesson hey, was I'd give them a solid five out of Uh, ten. Pretty good for me. Actually, it's your top number. I think it is. And uh, please stay tuned. We're coming to you from the American Academy of Optometry. And we are going to have more of these episodes of really interesting people. May I interrupt? No, you may not. not.
2: Ten out of ten would do this again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're vying for Craig's spot. (laughs) I vote yes. (laughs)
0: Exactly. And uh, for for my last episode, I would like to thank you for participating. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you.